Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. This podcast was recorded on Gadigal land, land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And today we're talking about the class struggle in universities, both here in Australia, where there are ongoing industrial campaigns in UCID and Melbourne Uni and around the country, uh, and in the US, where we've seen some historic breakout strikes from Berkeley to Rutgers. Yeah, so after years of being slugged with things like budget cuts, mass sackings, casualisation, overwork and wage cuts, university staff in the National Tertiary Education Union here in Australia are fighting back. Later, you'll hear our conversation with Alma Tolakovic, uh, an important union activist involved in the strikes at Sydney University. But first of all, we spoke to Socialist Alternatives industrial organiser, Jerem Small. He's been on the podcast before, um, you'll probably recognise him, and we wanted to get a bit of context from him. Jerem's written heaps of articles for Red Flag, including about the struggles in the university sector uh, and other unions. And he was a longtime unionist in his own right in construction, but he's also spent years giving advice to socialists across the country about how to rebuild rank and file organising in our unions. Hi, Jerem. Thanks for joining us. Um, let's start by talking a bit about universities as a workplace. So uni workers aren't really what people think of when they're imagining uh, the union movement and they have a bit of a rep um, as being a bit of an industrial backwater. Um, should they? What do, what do we think about um, university workers as the modern working class? Yeah, well, it's an interesting um, question, Chloe, because if you, if you just sort of look at it, there's some of the largest workplaces in a modern city, yeah, and the first law of industrial relations for anyone who studied HR um, is a larger workforce is harder to manage. So there's that. There's the fact that they have big budgets, like these are, they're not, you know, small shopkeepers, you know, with no actual money or whatever. Sydney Uni, for instance, recorded a surplus of a billion dollars just over a year ago. Um, and that's, you know, that's a little exceptional, but not totally exceptional. Um, they're also a major export industry for Australian capitalism and the centre of a whole bunch of revenue-making um, activity for Australian capitalism, uh, including education and all the spin-off industries. So you would think that it would be possible to uh, actually build some industrial power there. And there's all of the, the sort of recipe, like the way that the workers are treated also, uh, can push towards that as well, both for academic staff who are famously casualised, like the figure in the United States. I was reading it's something like 70% of all of the teaching is done by uh, insecurely employed uh, workers, either grad students or, or different you know, varieties of insecure workers. And the, the proportion in Australia is, is well above half of all of the teaching is done by casualised academics or people on fixed-term fixed contracts. So whereas... 30 or 40 years ago, you might have had career academics doing most of the teaching with relatively secure jobs and good conditions. That is no longer the case. Um, and wage theft, as we know, is absolutely endemic with something like a million, $100 million, I should say, in uh, uh, wage theft claims being approved by federal court just in the last couple of years. So it's the academic stuff. And then for the professional staff, they've also uh, been you know, assaulted by the neoliberal revolution. Um, so all of the people that used to work, you know, maybe for 30 or 40 years at a stretch in the history department or engineering or whatever, might have known the professor on a first name basis. Um, 
they've all basically been sacked, or the huge majority of them have been sacked, and they've been replaced by um, a younger, lower-paid um, professional workforce who are concentrated in large call centres, large processing hubs, and so on. So these these workers have real industrial power. They're concentrated together. Their employer has a lot of cash. So just looking at all of that, you would think, shit, there should, there should be some decent opportunities for unionisation and actual class struggle at these places, which, of course, is what we've seen in pretty spectacular fashion uh, in both the United Kingdom and the United States over the last couple of years. Um, so in that sort of context, like I think that casts a bit of a light on Australia and, you know, I think the potential is certainly there, but um, that potential is far from being realised at the moment. Well, Jerem, just on the US, there's been a recent uptick in industrial action at universities over there over the past year, um, including some really historic strikes and some successful ones. Can you tell us a bit about what's been going on there? Yeah, like I'm no expert, but, you know, like a lot of people, I've, I've been, you know, reading what I can about the, the US strikes and the UK strikes just to give them a passing mention. Like, uh, I think February and March of this year, 18 days of national industrial action were listed by the Universities and College Union, which is the main academics union in Britain. Um, like, I'm, you know, certainly no expert on that, but there's a level of struggle in these institutions which totally dwarfs anything that we've ever seen in Australia. In terms of the US, like the, the highlights that a lot of you uh, listeners would have heard about is the University of California strike last last year. That's the biggest strike in the entire uh, United States last year. Forty eight thousand academic workers on strike for uh, some of them, I think, about three and a half weeks, and some of them nearly six weeks, um, and winning a result that was, you know depending on the category of worker, like a lot of the lowest paid workers got paid something like 50%, uh, got something like, I think it's 43% increase in the first year and 93% over the course of the agreement. And even with that, there was a very substantial uh, no vote. Like a lot of people were saying, actually, this <laughs> falls far short of what we were fighting for, which was for $54,000 as a minimum wage in the University of California. And they calculated that as a wage that would get every single worker in the University of California out of rental stress. So the rental crisis is sort of helping to drive this particular, um, you know, uptick, uptick and struggle over there. So, yeah, uh, yeah, open-ended um, a strike with a pretty decent result. And then this year um, there's been the strike at Rutgers that, um, that people might have seen that, you know, potentially in the wake of the United uh, of the University of California system being out for five weeks, administrators in other parts of the country thought, okay, we'd better settle once it looks like the workers are, are getting serious and workers there got a pretty decent result. You're talking 30s and 40% pay increases after a five-day strike, um, which, again, is pretty historic. Okay, so in Australia, we're obviously not talking about uh, anything like that level of struggle, but there have been a bunch of strikes and struggles um, in higher education. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what's been going on here? Yeah, well, just well, sorry, just to take half a step back onto the the US. I think it is because even though we celebrate all of the stuff that's happening in the US, I think we want to acknowledge that it's not like these strikes just burst into being fully formed. Like if if you've you know talked to people over there or read any of the history, there's a couple of very important strikes that people refer to: um, a wildcat strike at the University of California Santa Cruz, one particular campus. 
that was about 350 workers, like 80 of them got sacked, you know, they got re-employed. It was a very messy strike, but they got some sort of a result out of it and managed to get re-employed. So it sort of, and that was crucial to popularising the idea of we should be paid enough to pay rent in these jurisdictions. Um, so that was in, I think, 20, 2020, and then the uh, Columbia strike in 2021, 22, which, again, messy strike, on again, off again, lots of internal disputes in the union about whether to accept the contract, but that was seems to have been a real breakthrough in terms of winning substantial pay increases as well as childcare and healthcare and so on. So, you know, in terms of... Like we want to be looking at the US, but it can seem like, oh, shivers, it's like you know, trying to jump to the moon or something. Like, yeah, you know, we can expect if we're ever going to get there, it's going to be all sorts of partial strikes, messy strikes, experiments, things that don't quite come off and some things that work spectacularly well. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, when we look at the situation in Australia, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's nothing like the situation over there industrially, even though the actual circumstances, you would argue, um, have some pretty clear parallels with inflation, neoliberalism and so on. So in Australia, uh, look, I was doing a quick survey of social alternative members on the campus before. Um, I mean, Sydney Uni had nine days of strikes over a year, um, but the problem is that management generally in Australian universities and particularly at Sydney Uni um, are so determined to get rid of all of the the sort of legacy conditions that there was nowhere near sufficient. Like you would have needed an open-ended strike to, to actually hold on to your conditions. And then when you look at um, uh, places around the country, Monash, uh, I think yesterday had its third uh, strike day. So that's one, uh, you know, like, like the sort of part day strikes and, and rallies and so on. Uh, one of the, I think it's Edith Cowan University over in West Australia has had um, two or three strike days. And then most of the universities have had zero or one uh, strike day. So it's it's quite a, in, in terms of the National Tertiary Education Union, which covers most workers on the campuses, um, you know, this is a pretty busy year. But in terms of what the potential would be and in terms of what, is required industrially to, um, you know, to reverse the neoliberal tide in in higher education. Um, we're a long way short of that. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. That's okay. Um, well, Jerem, let's talk a bit about what happened here during COVID. Uh, there were big budget cuts across the sector at that time, and the union itself, the leadership of the National Tertiary Education Union actually offered up a massive wage cut to the bosses in exchange for supposed job security. This was the the so-called job protections framework. So can you tell us what that was all about? Yeah, well, the, like a lot of listeners would probably be familiar. It, it's actually like sort of like a bunch of us were sort of struggling to think. It's probably the, the largest scale revolt, like national revolt in a national union in Australia I don't know, in a generation, like the, the revolt that our comrades and, you know, and many thousands of other workers, obviously, but it was spearheaded by a group called NTU Fightback against this idea from the national leadership of the NTU that um, they would, like they devised and sold a 15% wage cut of their entire membership to the managers of the university sector. And just pause for a second, like to reflect on what that tells you about the union in higher education over here, and maybe at least partly an explanation for why 
um, things that, you know, an order of magnitude or two off what is happening in the US and the UK. Um, but the shop distributive and allied union, the SDA, sellout deals available, is notorious for selling out its members' wages and conditions in return for a seat at the negotiating table and a few crumbs in terms of, you know, an extra leave entitlement there or, you know, like whatever it is. Um, the business model of the NTU, if you, if you sort of strip it all away, has a lot of similar elements um, and they're able to trade off not just conditions that have been won by other workers in other industries, but the whole sort of legacy conditions that go with being in a university. And my view is that that has produced a particularly um, you know, sort of left talking, um, but uh, industrially extremely backward uh, leadership of the union and, you know, to come up with a, a bold plan to sell a to sell your members a 50 and sell the industry a 15% wage cut is pretty extraordinary. So the great thing that happened was this rank and file revolt that consisted of um, some of the biggest branch meetings of the NTU that had ever been held in, in the country and in a string of universities. Um, where, you know, people argued, well, <laughs> people argued about it. The argument was largely with the national officials who were trying to sell it um, and voted in enormous numbers that uh, was all happening during COVID, of course, and a lot of it during lockdown, especially here in Victoria. So, um, yeah, these enormous branch meetings held over Zoom that um, were just outraged and, um, yeah, and basically what happened was that the NTU leadership it looked like to the university managers couldn't deliver on their deal, and so the university managers started to walk away, and the entire deal collapsed, which was a fantastic victory for rank and file organising. Now, I don't think you can say directly that that's fed into you know it hasn't created a whole new situation, it hasn't opened a new era in um, higher education in Australia, but I think it has at least opened up some possibilities. It's shown that it's possible to tell the national leadership of a major union that they are totally wrong, that everything that they're saying is um, industrially backward and ask about, and to send them packing. Um, and that's a great lesson for people in higher education um, and further beyond, and at least sort of opened up some possibilities for, you know, sometimes the thing that holds things in place is this idea, oh, the way things are is the way they've always been, and these people know what they're talking about. Well, I think 2020 blew all of that apart, um, which was a good thing to come out of it. Well, the uh, rank and file campaign against the jobs protection framework um, and obviously the sellout deal that the NTU leadership tried to um, to push around the country is an important kind of backdrop to the situation we find ourselves in now. What are some of the general themes and challenges that this round um, of industrial campaigns are facing um, in Australia? Yeah, well, I think as well as the the soul of the, the whole backdrop of the neoliberal revolution um, in higher education, you've got just the fact of inflation um, sharpens the class struggle everywhere. Like if you're used to getting pay rises of one point nine percent or two point one percent, that were the you know, the, the jewel in the crown of the NTU last time around. Um, and inflation is slightly more than that or slightly less than that. It's, oh, this isn't very great. But all of a sudden when inflation is up over 7% and looks like staying there and your pay rises are still 2%, 3.5%, you know, the towering heights of 4 and a bit percent, um, all of a sudden it seems to matter a fair bit more. 
So I think that's a factor. I think one of the things, like, like really the standout university, Sydney for, you know, more than a decade has had a, a something of a tradition of industrial action of at least having a few days of strikes, which up until this bargaining round was sufficient to sort of uh, deter management from the worst of their attacks. Um, I think you'd need something an order of magnitude bigger than that now. But like the the other campus that really stands out, um, I reckon, is Melbourne Uni. And the reason it stands out isn't particularly the industrial tradition there. It's the fact that um, like a lot of the organisers in the US and in the UK, these sort of young grad student or, you know, like tenure track uh, staff who have read a bit of Jane McAlevey, the well-known US organiser, um, have read a bit of Labor Notes, have been to a strike school or two and have applied those lessons in their universities. The only place I know to have really uh, taken those lessons to heart and applied them at any scale is at Melbourne University where since... Um, about 2018, uh, mainly focused in uh, the Faculty of Arts uh, at Melbourne Uni, like the the, the activism over stolen wages there, um, well, it's sort of spilled from activism into actual organising, you know. It's not just call a rally, put up a poster, make a hullabaloo, you know, all of that's great. It's not just have a fair work process, you know, that's essential. It is, okay, we are going to use this process to talk to hundreds of academic staff about their conditions. We're going to get them to sign on to this bureaucratic process. Uh, we're going to have individual discussions. We're going to have a structure of, of delegates and so on. Um, and it worked. Like Melbourne Uni have a, a decent clause, unlike any other university, about payment for all hours worked. Um, but it, so it was very clearly the combination of that and the very serious organising done over a few years by people uh, connected with that case that got the result at Melbourne Uni. Um, I think I mentioned about $100 million so far or close to $100 million in back pay for stolen wages. Nearly half of that is from Melbourne Uni, um, which is testament you know, both to the agreement and also to the organising to back it up without which the agreement is pretty useless. My understanding, and I'm not, you know, sort of in the thick of things at Melbourne Uni, but obviously now a few comrades who are involved. The Like from the start of this year, a bunch of those uh, quite capable and experienced organisers turned uh, seriously to organising towards, um, a, a, you know, a proper strike uh, and potentially it's, you know, been talked about publicly, um, an open-ended strike at Melbourne University. Um and you saw the results, or we saw the results of that. Um, and this is before, you know, bargaining's been going for a, a while, but the first real, well, the first industrial action at Melbourne Uni in this bargaining round was on May the 3rd, so ju just about a month ago, um, or just over a month ago. And, like, I was part of that crowd that marched from Melbourne Uni down to Trades Hall to meet other uni, uh, uh, university staff. Um, I counted the crowd twice, both times is like easy 800, very likely a 1,000. And this is a place where I've been at pickets at Melbourne Uni um, in the past, like, you know, eight, 10 years ago, where if you've got 30 people or 40 or 50 people, you think, okay, oh, well, at least, you know, we're building up some activists. Look, we've all been there and you have to take that step. Unless you're prepared to do something small, you're never going to end up doing anything at all. Um but to see that crowd, uh, I, I was just really impressed um, with the work that had been done and the potential that's there. Now, where that goes, who knows? Like, the, you know, the laws in Australia are extremely restrictive. In the US, they can take advantage of these things called unfair labour practice uh, strikes. So 
that's a whole discussion that has to happen. Um, there's a whole discussion. Well, anyway, you know, like to, but it's just so refreshing to to see the seriousness with which people at that institution are taking the task of building industrial power. Um, so anyway, there's no guarantees. It's obviously a long way to go before we get anything like the US. Um, there's an enormous number of obstacles. I'm absolutely sure that one of those obstacles will be the entrenched leadership of the NTU, which would rather sell its members a pay cut and a bunch of uh, cuts to their conditions like at Sydney Uni then organise them for the sort of fight that's needed. Um, so, yeah, the, look, there's no shortage of challenges, but it's pretty great to see at least um, some serious steps being taken um, at Melbourne Uni and we'll see how it rolls. And just, I mean, you know, maybe to sort of finish off on the, the sector generally, those those pressures are there everywhere. That potential is there everywhere. That pissed-offedness of people that thought that they were going to move into a particular sort of job, have a particular kind of role in life or whatever, and instead they find gruelling, insecure work going for decades and people around them, you know, getting depressed and dropping out and whatever, all of a sudden, like, you know, if that can, if that discontent can find um, some organisers to give it form and shape and, and direction and organise towards actual industrial power, um, yeah, I think it could be quite interesting times indeed in higher education in Australia. Yeah, it seems like there's some really great developments at Melbourne Uni, something to watch and uh, hopefully other activists get the same idea elsewhere in the country. It's probably worth circling back to the US, which we mentioned earlier, um, and just some of the lessons we can draw out of what's been happening there. There's been you know, really long strikes in some cases spanning several days. Um, like you said earlier, open-ended uh, strikes in the US and serious picketing of campuses. There's been um, some instances of unions standing up against like state intimidation and laws as well. Um, and, you know, there's been major victories. So I think a lot to learn for, for activists here. Could you go through some of those, uh, those elements of the campaigns in the US? Yeah, like uh, like I say, I'm definitely no expert, but a couple of things that really sort of stood out to me, like if you're talking about both the Columbia strike in 21-22 and the University of California strike, they really went for the jugular. And by that, I mean, the like in a way, the modern university, how much does it care how much education is really delivered? Like for them, for the managers, it's the bottom line and it's the smooth flow of students and their marks and grades and graduations and all of those processes that is the metric that if you hit that and impact on that, you start to get the result. That was certainly the case at University of California. It wasn't until, and you can hear, like there's a lot of podcasts with um, and articles with strikers talking about this, that it was like the strike started in early November. It wasn't until it was getting into December and there was no resolution in sight. That's when the university starts to think, because they're, their winter break is the short break. They've got a sharp turnaround to finish the classes, get everything marked, get everyone graduated, get the next crop in, get people re-enrolled. Like all of that has to happen in a pretty tight window. And it was when that strike started to impact on that window, all of a sudden the domino started falling and they started getting a few results. That seems to have been the case as well at Columbia. Uh, the strike started in uh, November of 2021 and ran until I think it was early January of, of 2022. So, so it was a two-month strike. That's a serious strike. Um, and they had strike pay um, uh, from the UAW. They had, uh, you know, 
strike kitchens run by undergrad students and so on. But it was it was only as that um, sh- that really short turnaround window uh, between the two semesters in the United States um, got impacted that management really started to move and you started to see the offers, is my understanding anyway. Um, so the ability to go for the jugular, that is a little easier in the United States, strange to say, partly because the... Um, well, yeah, partly because of the industrial laws are so repressive over here. Um, but if we wanted to get the same sort of serious results as the US, you would have to be just as serious about uh, going for what the universities actually care about. Another thing that really stands out is the uh, preparation for, like I don't know so much about the Columbia and University of California Santa Cruz strike, but there's a really informative article that uh, people should um, should definitely read on Red Flag website by Alexis Facilli. Um, when you talk to a, a, a couple of people involved in the Rutgers strike, they had, um, God, what was the figure? 500 people. It's actually hard to remember. Like this is 9,000 people on strike, all uh, academics of different sorts at Rutgers, which is the uh, public university in New Jersey, uh, just next to New York there. Um, so 9,000 people on strike, 500 of those people had been through a strike school, like some sort of formal training and I'm going for half a day, a day, a couple of days, not sure, but about, you know, this is what, teaching you the skills you need to map your area, um, have organising conversations, you know, to systematically make sure that your work unit is signed up and strike ready when the call is given. Um, then once the strike was called or notified, something like 800 people did a strike picket. So that's like, you know, nearly one in 10 of the workforce. So the, I mean, we could do a whole separate program on, you know, the, the sort of new American organising, I suppose, and, you know, the, the strengths and, and silences and weaknesses um, in some areas of Jane McAlevey and, and Labor Notes and so on. But one thing that they are very solid on, and they explicitly draw on the socialist tradition for this, is the importance of serious strike preparation. Because um, you're going up against the boss, but half the time in the US historically and also over here, you go and to, to do anything serious, you're going to have to go up against your own union officials as well. And that requires really serious preparation so that people aren't just, you know, instantly intimidated or starved back or whatever. So I think there are a couple of things that stand out. The, the other point that Alexis makes, he talks to Sherry Wolf, um, who's a socialist in the in the US. That again, a bunch of listeners to this podcast would know, and she was um, the organizer of Rutgers for uh, for one of the unions there for I think six years, and a bunch of political radicals of different sorts were involved, and that obviously really helps any strike effort as well. I couldn't tell you the exact mix of that, um, but you know it can definitely be an important part of the mix, but. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that just really stands out is just the idea of organising at scale and organising for open-ended strikes. Um, so it's not just you know a couple of hundred here for half a day and you know whatever, pat yourself on the back and you know call call yourself historic or whatever. Um, it is like no, we really want to be able to go to the jugular, and that involves building supermajority strikes, which can go you know day after day, week after week, and build momentum. Uh, yeah, I got the chance to read one of the articles about the Rutgers strike last month um, in Labor Notes, and you do get a sense of that um, level of rank and file preparation and organization going in. Um, one of the things that uh, Alexis in the Red Flag article mentions about the Rutgers strike is the relatively 
open nature of negotiations. I think sometimes management were forced to negotiate with as many as 50 unionists in the room, which would be, I think, totally alien to a lot of the uh, union movement in Australia today. Why do you think that kind of thing was important? It's That's a really welcome development, I reckon, and it's something that you'll find a lot in Labor Notes and in Jane McAlevey, like um, the... One of the cases that uh, that McAlevey talks about uh, in a couple of her books is a Philadelphia hospital where there's 100 people at the bargaining table. There's two people from every single unit. Partly that's important because you need every single unit on board for the strike. So um, and having so the, even the initial presentation of these are our claims, you know, the delegates from each of the units get to hear everyone else's claims. One presents the claim, one explains, this is why it matters to me. We need that extra orderly so that when we take a break, you know, the nurses don't have to push the patient. You know, we're in this obscure unit that no one's ever heard of, but we are vital to all of your work and we deserve justice too. So it's a, it's a way of building solidarity between every single part of the, of the workforce, um, which yeah, is quite interesting. And, you know, there's... There's the sort of uh, the perfect, well, perfect. There's the classic cases which McAlevey presents, but her, her recent book is interesting too on that big bargaining and transparent bargaining stuff um, of a bunch of of union branches which have who have done some of it, and you know they're not capable of launching into having a hundred people at the at the negotiating table, but they can have radical transparency. Radical. There shouldn't be anything radical about it, but like <laughs> for it for it to be standard practice, like it should be the most unremarkable thing. You are negotiating your conditions of work for the next two years, three years, four years. You know, eight hours at least of your working day is going to be governed by these clauses. You need those clauses available. You need to know what's a strong one and what's a weak one. You know, it's a whole lot easier to enforce a, a a contract or an enterprise agreement if it's got you know wording that is actually uh, legally infor- legally enforceable. That's a whole other thing to back it up. But um, that's part of it as well. So you look at any of the strikes that say Chicago Teachers Union or United Teachers of Los Angeles have had, like any of these big open-ended strikes which have featured in um, in high school education as well, we should mention, and the Red State Rebellion, like what was that, like seven or eight states had, had mass teacher strikes just in 2017-2018. Uh, um, like a, a lot of the that school of organizing, you will be able to, like you can just log on to the Chicago Teachers Union website, oh, there's a 63 page bargaining chart, which most members will not read every word, but you know, I'm a medic at a school, I want to know what is happening with that clause, you can just look at it and see it, and when the tentative agreement is reached, the wording is there, so you can tell, are we going forward, are we going backwards, is this just empty phraseology, is it really, you know, does it say that you will get the things that you're entitled to. So it sounds nerdy. It is nerdy, but it's actually like negotiating a legal contract is not irrelevant what the terms of that contract are. So to have that open is a pretty decent thing and intimidating for the boss, I imagine, walking in with 50 workers Mm. eyeballing you and, yeah, and spotting your lies and bullshit. So, yeah. And as you say in your red flag article that's very critical of the deal um, on the table at Sydney Uni, the devil is in the detail a lot when it comes to how the bosses exploit us. Yeah, that's right. So so even just looking at something like, like one of the big demands at Sydney has been for an enforceable target for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employment. And every enterprise agreement in the country in tertiary education has a bunch of platitudes about how important it is to employ 
you know, this many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, nothing the hell ever happens because it's just platitudes. The only the only clause in the country, as far as I know, that has an enforceable target is RMIT that says, um, uh, you know, a certain number will be employed by this date. And that is language that you can actually back up and, and, and get enforced. But anyway, that's, that's one example, but there's many, many examples and not... There's no magic, well, yeah, it's not just the words on the page. You need an active membership to back it up. But you read any account of, you know, the Builders Labourers Federation, the metal workers, like any of the serious unions, everyone talks about, you know, the terms of industrial agreements, you know, how you can get this particular um, part of the award to work for you, how, how you organise enforcement of it, how you get a bit extra. And, you know, we know, as I sort of point out in one of those red flag articles, the meaning of life is not enforceable clauses. Um, you know, the Builders Labourers Federation remind us of that. But you're not much of a union if all you can win is a bunch of platitudes on a piece of paper rather than a prescriptive uh, list of conditions that the boss has to follow. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that that seems to be part of the the... The, the mix in uh, organising in the United States as well. So I think we've got plenty to learn. There's definitely silences in uh, in Jane McAlevey. Uh, you wouldn't read her, well, you know, she just doesn't talk about the role of politics, even though she acknowledges a lot of her organising uh, technique is derived directly from Communist Party organisers uh, like William Z. Foster, who was one of the great syndicalist organisers actually in the 19-teens who became the Communist Party organiser in the 1920s. Uh, industrial organiser. So she she acknowledges her debt to them, but anyway, she doesn't share those politics and doesn't, um, whereas I would say any real union revival, like historically, it's always been bound up with some sort of revival in radical politics. Um, the, the two are intimately intertwined, partly because you need a bunch of people who are confident in their view of the world in order to take on the bosses and take on the conservative officials. So yeah, McAlevey's sort of silent on that. She's silent on the the sort of structural role of trade union officials. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of you know, using labour notes and Jane McAlevey's work for what we can. Um, but, you know, I think it needs to be supplemented or definitely can be usefully supplemented uh, in terms of the role of politics in the officials and much else by a decent socialist analysis. But, God, there's better. There's much worse places to start, such as <laughs> oh, let's sell a fifteen percent wage cut to our entire membership for crying out loud. Like at least McAlevey <laughs> and all of that school draw a very clear line in the sand about um, unions are combat organisations. They they are there to have, and McAlevey uses the word, you know, crippling industrial action. You've got to cause a crisis for our rulers, or they'll never give us anything. Now, there's a whole bunch of discussion you could have sort of starting from that, but, um, yeah, all of this is a pretty welcome development and to see even a tiny amount of that catching hold in Australia would be uh, and also a really welcome development. Well, thanks, Jerem, for being on the show. It's been great to have you. Um, I think that really helped set up some of the context for the chat that we had with Alma about what she's been doing at Sydney University. Her and her comrades have really been trying to apply some of those those basic principles of you know democracy and negotiations of of having as many strikes as possible, open ended if if possible, um, against the university to really cause as much damage and and get your demands met. Um, and so. Yeah, that's coming up next. But thanks so much for joining us, Jerem. 
All right. Thanks, Emma. And thanks, Chloe. And yeah, look forward to listening to Alma, who has done just such a huge amount to build industrial power um, at one of these institutions that we're talking about and to get people walking around with their heads up rather than thinking, oh, well, mustn't grumble about losing historic conditions. Anyway, yeah, thanks heaps and look forward to listening to Alma. Thanks, Jim. We're joined today by Alma Tolakovic. She's a socialist and union activist and a staff member at Sydney University. She's been there for over a decade. Uh, she's a delegate on the UCID NTU branch committee and a leading activist in the left-wing rank-and-file group NTU Fightback. Welcome, Alma. Thank you for having me. So, Alma, uh, you've obviously been involved in a really important industrial campaign at the University of Sydney. Um, so far, there's been nine days of strike action throughout uh, an 18-month uh, campaign. But you and your comrades at NTU Fightback are now calling for a no vote uh, to the deal which is on the table in the wake of that campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're campaigning against the deal? Okay, well, contrary to what the vice chancellor, i.e. our CEO, is saying, and some people on the left, um, and the officials certainly, uh, the deal actually represents uh, some of the biggest uh, setbacks to our wages and conditions um, in basically in the history of our union. Um, so just for context, Sydney University traditionally has the best wages and conditions in the country. It's what we call a pace-setting university. So the agreement we negotiate at UCID and the wins we um, have often flow on to the rest of the sector. Now, what's controversial about this particular EBA is that some of the attacks that we have resisted for years and years have actually been allowed to, you know, go through essentially. So just to give you like um, maybe a handful First of all, the average worker at Sydney University's uh, admin worker level five, step five, would be $20,000 worse off relative to inflation. Wow, that is a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, by the end of the agreement. Um, previously, it was controversial for us to have 120 education-focused roles, which are super exploitative, teaching-only contracts. Um, this agreement, the proposal is to have 650. Um, there is an attack on the minimum engagement clause, which, you know, when you go to work, you're supposed to have a shift of minimum three hours. Nobody wants to come in for one hour a day. Under this new agreement, believe it, believe it or not, management will be able to give work to casuals um, at a rate of one hour per day. Um, there's just, you know, there's just too many attacks to talk about. <laughs> I can see your jaws dropping. <laughs> I, I hope that explains some of the reason why. <laughs> well, one thing that's worth getting into is the pay cut. I mean, that's massive. Yeah. Um, 20,000 over the, is that over the course of the agreement? It would be that people lose on yeah. an average worker, sorry, loses. Yeah. So by the end of the agreement, so because our agreement has, um, you know, the EBA campaign has been going on for almost two years. We're counting from 1st July mm. 2021 up to um, end of June 2026. 
I was wondering what some of the arguments around around the pay cut have been because some people are arguing for this agreement, obviously. Um, and you guys have been saying in fight back that it's just like outrageous and untenable to vote for uh, a deal that contains this kind of level of a pay cut. Mm. So uh, some of the arguments people have used to justify the agreement have been that Sydney Uni already has pretty good wages, comparatively speaking. Um, and that, you know, that certainly has been true up to this point, but this inflation crisis, this cost of living crisis that we're facing now has really set us back, um, as have, you know, the massive increases in rents. So like in Sydney, rent is roughly like 30% higher. A lot of my colleagues have had their rent increase, uh, rent, rent increases of up to $150 a week. Um, so. Yeah, one. So I suppose one excuse that has been given um, by people who want to pr- promote the deal has been that well, you already had good wages to begin with. Um, ignoring the fact keep that, them. <laughs> ignoring the fact that the only way to keep good wages is to actually keep fighting for them. And I thought that was the point of unions. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I thought that was the point of unions too. Um, the other argument has been that the actual pay offer from management is higher than any other pay offer at other campuses. This is true by 0.1%. So, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, yeah. And, like, the campaign began with a demand, uh, you know, a log of claims, which is the list of demands that unions go into negotiating um, that they're fighting to win. Um, what was the pay claim on that log of claims? Okay, so initially the pay claim um, before inflation, you know, started skyrocketing was 12% over three and a half years. Uh, Myself and my comrades in NTU Fightback, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, actually launched an open letter and a campaign to raise this wage claim um, to be CPI plus 2.5%. So basically um, for management to match the wages to bare minimum inflation plus at 2.5% because the 2.5% on top is the actual wage rise. Just keeping in with inflation is not actually a wage rise. It's just this, you know, uh, keeping um, things balanced. But yeah, anyway, ultimately that um, for various reasons that uh, was shaved down to CPI plus 1.5. But yeah, so to go from our original claim, um, as it was settled originally on the log, to be CPI plus 1.5 down to what we ended up with, an effective wage cut of roughly 5% a year, it's, it's pretty bad. And Sydney University workers could be pretty confident um, that you said can very much afford uh, an oh, yeah. above inflation pay rise. I think it was actually during the campaign, the EA campaign, that um, Sydney University registered a surplus of, what was it? $1.05 billion. $1.05 billion, what? exactly. Um, that Let's we call know that what it is, though. It's a profit, yeah. right? Uh, that's yeah. profit, supposedly public institution, uh, a profit of that um, magnitude um, because universities are very much big business. Talked about with Jerem earlier, they're the fourth biggest export um, of Australian capitalism. So there's plenty of money there. The question is whether or not unions 
uh, have the political will and capacity to fight uh, to push more of that uh, going in the you know, pockets of workers as opposed to you know the coffers and the um, and the bonuses bonus packages of vice chancellors. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, on some of the other conditions in the in the agreement that you guys are opposing, uh, one really important one is around um, the new PhD fellow positions. And this is being touted by some people uh, who are trying to sort of support the deal or sell the deal as uh, something that's going to undermine casualization. So it'd be good for, for uh, Sydney University workers. But you guys are really against this and see it as a historic attack. Can you explain why? Yeah, absolutely. It's a historic attack. So just to quickly explain for um, our listeners, uh, so PhD fellowships are essentially uh, three-year fixed-term contracts that would be given to, as the name suggests, PhD students studying at the University of Sydney. It would involve them teaching anywhere between three and five tutorials per week, depending on what faculty they're in. So usually three would be for the humanities up to five for STEM, um, so science and engineering, maths, et cetera. <clears throat> now, the proposal here is that these PhD fellows essentially do a huge amount of teaching um, for roughly 350 bucks a week, which is way below um, minimum wage, poverty line, et cetera, all the rest of it. Um, and the other controversy uh, surrounding it is that essentially they would not be able to take up other work at the university because there would be uh, it would take away time from their actual PhD or their research degree. So it's a way of expecting students, PhD students, to do a huge number of teaching each week um, for a paltry sum of money. Um, and I think it's it's super important to call it out because whilst some PhD students might want to take up this offer, we I think we need to see it from the point of view of, well, what does management get out of this? Because every single thing that is settled on, management won't sign off on it unless it suits them to some extent, right? So what management gets out of this is a new form of exploitative, short-term, precarious employment essentially a new form of cheap labor to carry out teaching and they don't have to owe the students anything at the end of it. After the three years, the students do not get a con converted to a job. They don't um, get promised a job. They just get to, you know, teach, um, you know, the classes. And then I think the other factor that's important from management's perspective is that it's actually more expensive to hire someone with a PhD to carry out teaching than it is um, to hire someone who hasn't got the PhD yet. So that's what management get out of it. They get someone cheaper to do the work that existing that a lot of existing casuals with PhDs do at the moment. And this has been compared by uh, other NTU fightback activists um, in some of the red flag articles that I've read about um, these roles uh, with the US model of um you know highly highly exploited grad roles um what and already 
Australian universities, a huge amount of the teaching role is done by you know, highly casualized, quite poorly paid, often paid below the legal, you know, illegally uh, underpaid uh, workers. So, yeah, I'm just trying to understand like how people are trying to sell this as somehow a solution to this and, you know, what's the argument behind that? I suppose one argument is that it's a form of decasualization. I suppose if you <laughs> replace one precarious contract with another, yes, it is a form of decasualization. Uh, but I, I think we need to call it out exactly what it is. It's extremely exploitative. It's um, they do not owe the PhD students anything at the conclusion of the three-year fixed-term contract. Um, yeah, I guess that's how it's been sold. It's it's one of those defeats sold as a victory. Uh, unfortunately, there's so many of them in our trade union movement. Maybe people don't realize how precarious some of the most precarious workers at universities are. But just for context, it's common for people to be casuals for, you know, at least a decade sometimes. I have a colleague who has been a casual for 13 years. The other thing that's very common is to be working without a paycheck. Now, the the last time I heard about this, I, I honestly it was in the context of you know those um, situations where you know the the state has gone bust and the department just you know yeah they can't pay the wages of public servants or whatever literally yeah. government shutdown yeah government <laughs> shutdown yeah. war torn country like seriously um, no it's actually just common practice that at the start of semester casual workers don't get their contract for like three months. And you can't submit a timesheet without having a casual contract. So that means you're going three months without wages. Oh my god! This gosh. is literally this is a common practice at universities. So it's just absolutely in an criminal. enlightened place. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> I know it's outrageous. What? Yeah, I was going to say the place is so enlightened. It makes workers do this um, a module, an educational module, on slavery, modern day slavery. And it's about making sure you you source your coffee and your mm. products from places that are not running a slave ship. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just think it's ironic because they, they, they don't pay wages for months. <laughs> yeah, far out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see whether we keep that. Up. Our cameras the wall. Tell us a little bit more about what was the approach of the NTU fight back activists going into the UCID union struggle and into bargaining? I think there are two elements to approaching any, um, you know, any enterprise bargaining agreement. The first element is the political one. The second is the um, what you do industrially. So our approach is absolutely to be no concessions. We don't think that our wages and conditions are up for grabs. We don't think we're here to box clever and we're certainly not here to just get our feet under the bargaining table. We are here to organize a strike. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, we're here to give management an ultimatum that here's our list of demands. You either meet them by this deadline or we're out on strike. I, that's pretty much our, our approach. Um, and we took that approach into every single element of um, our organizing throughout the last couple of years. And we, we will continue to do so because I think it's about, you know, the heart of the union. Like it's the battle of for 
what should unions represent? Should they be, um, you know, organizations that make the boss's arguments for them or should they be combative organizations that actually fight for, um, you know, workers' interests? So, yeah, I suppose to summarize it, it's the no concessions and we really fucking mean that. I wanted to say something about that approach in negotiations, a no concessions approach, which uh, is actually a refreshing argument, I think, in the Australian trade union movement today. One that I think that trade unionists throughout history would have thought was a bit of a no-brainer, really, that at the very bare basics, like you enter into negotiations with management and at a bare minimum, you're holding on to the legacy conditions and at least the legacy pay um, that you've won in the past through different rounds of industrial struggle. But so much these days, union officials see legacy conditions as, you know, sitting down behind the bargaining table and, oh, you'll give us that if we give you this and kind of trading off some of that hard-won conditions with the idea that you're going to get something uh, in exchange. Um, so I just think that's a, that's a really relevant argument, not just in the university sector, but the trade union movement overall. I mean, it's not uncommon for union officials to literally ask their members, what are you willing to lose? What are you willing to sell off for something else that you want? You know, yeah. like what conditions are you going to lose for pay or pay are you going to lose for conditions? And it just yeah. sets up this whole paradigm where it's a, yeah, a kind of zero sum game. You, you can't actually improve your conditions and wages overall. It's always got to be traded off and, and bargained off, which is another way of saying, we're not willing to do what it takes to really fight to get more out of the bosses. Yeah, exactly right. And I, the form that that which, to, sorry, the form in which that takes um, generally with us is the officials run a survey at the start of bargaining and they force you to rank conditions off against pay and you know other conditions. Um, and that's usually one of my the first arguments I have going into negotiations. I have a massive fight about why why are you forcing us to tr- to um, pit off these precious conditions against each other and pay, mm. setting us up for defeat. And it seems like another major element of it is um, the arguing for strikes. We've this has come up a bunch of times already, but um, and there were a, a series of strikes, but you were always the ones arguing for longer, for more, for them to be in more disruptive moments, um, like you know, in parts of the semester that are going to really fuck shit up (laughs) basically um yeah yeah. can you talk more about some of that those arguments that you had yeah so just for yeah for context um obviously the university year is split into two big semesters 13 weeks each with um roughly one month break in between semester one and two and then a big summer break between um you know over christmas at the end of the year so we argued that we needed to have uh the most strikes happen during the semester time because this would actually disrupt thousands and thousands of um, classes happening throughout the semester and throughout the year. So uh, one of the best times to strike at a university is in the first three weeks because this is when the university is trying to, you know, welcome the... So context, again, Sydney Uni has over 70,000 students. It's a big international university um, in some faculties, half of our students are international students, which obviously in this context, they are big money-making, um, yeah, I don't know, machines. Cash cows. Cash cows. I do want to use the term, sadly. but yeah, yeah, sadly, yeah. 
So, you know, the university is trying um, their best to make an impression, to make sure these students remain enrolled past the census date, which, which is the magic date uh, that your fees are due. Um, and so it's, it just makes absolute perf- a perfect sense to disrupt through strike action, shut down the campus early on, um, disrupt business as usual, highlight all the injustices happening on this campus. Unfortunately, we didn't win most of those um, debates because the more moderate forces in the union, um, w- you know, d- they actually prioritized negotiations over strikes. They, um, and in doing so, they continued to sow illusions in negotiations, in bargaining at the table, basically talks with management is what that translates to. Um, and so whilst we did have strikes, um, as you said, Emma, unfortunately they happened, um, they were peppered throughout a very long period. So at, at one point we had maybe like a five, six month break between strikes. Let the bosses catch their breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, people might say, oh, some of that was um, – like the holidays or whatever, um, A, not all of it was, and B, it's not like the strike was called early as we argued and so we had, you know, we had months to build it. No, unfortunately, they didn't even want to call the strike, the officials. So, yeah, I think there was overall a lot of wasted opportunities um, with the strike campaign. Nonetheless, we had nine days. Um, calling a strike was like getting, you know, it was like pulling teeth, frankly. And one of the arguments that union officials and more moderate elements often make to kind of counterpose it to strike action is other things. I know this was a bit of an argument, like what even does industrial action look like? Is it strikes or is it some other form? Do you want to talk to, tell us a little bit about that debate? The, the debate over what does industrial action look, look like at the University of Sydney that debate actually came – I think it's important to note what the origins of that debate. Actually, it came from the right of the union who are fiercely anti-strike. And their proposal for having um, an alternative form of industrial action was simply so they could avoid taking strike action, i.e. shutting down the university and withdrawing your labour and having a serious confrontation with the bosses – um, so it was about avoiding that in favor of something like a work ban. Now, I'll just quickly explain um, a work ban. Essentially, a work ban involves a worker not doing a small part of their daily job. So a popular one that's raised at universities is uh, results um, processing, so not um, either not marking assignments or essays, or not submitting the ones that you have marked. Now, this sounds, you know, to the, to the casual observer, this might sound quite like radical, or it might sound like disruptive. Oh, no, if students don't get their marks, what then? They can't get their degree. But I think that there's, there's several problems with propping up this type of industrial action. The first type of thing, the first thing is that, um, it involves necessarily only a small percentage, in fact, a tiny percentage of the workforce. Universities are huge workplaces that have thousands of workers that do all sorts of work. Um, yeah, administrators, academics, researchers, cleaners, 
you know, mechanics, etc. Just so many were so you get the picture. Only a small percentage of those people actually do the processing of um, results or marking. Now, the implication of this is that when there is a smaller number of people taking industrial action, they are necessarily more prone to being victimized. And there's a, a whole history of people being victimized for essentially sticking their necks out as individuals in their department, because again, the other the other issue with um, a small scale work ban or industrial action like this is that if you happen to find yourself in a department that is not well unionized, which a lot of pockets are around the university, well, then you're it's kind of like yourself against the boss, so you're facing a lot of pressure. And obviously, one of the whole points of strikes is that you're not stick, sticking your net out as an individual. Uh, the whole workforce are collectively, you know, uh, having a confrontation with the boss and it's strength in numbers, the unity um, of a majority of people withdrawing their label together as opposed to the university kind of functioning as normal in most respects but this kind of small section being disrupted, which I also work in a university. I'm at, up the road at UTS and let me tell you, like the university doesn't really care that much about the student experience either. <laughs> so the idea <laughs> that they're uh, going to care that much about the experience um, of, you know, students having their uh, marks withdrawn, this is much, much less disruptive. Yeah, but I think it's it puts it, all of the impetus on or, or the onus rather on individuals to carry out these actions and they might have an overbearing manager breathing down their neck telling them not to. There's just something so much more collective in the experience of going on strike all together, um, every union member going out together and, and showing that kind of strength. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another impo- important element of the work ban situation is under Australia's anti-union laws, the you know if you partake in a partial work ban, even if you are only you know refusing to do say ten percent of your job you could actually still be losing 100% of your wages, up to 100% of your wages. You, you could essentially be stood down. Um, and so, and then, you know, the only way for your work ban to be effective or even, you know, have some, any kind of impact would obviously be to do it indefinitely. Now, if you're going to do an indefinite kind of work ban or whatever, well, then you actually might just, you, you probably yeah, should just <laughs> have an indefinite strike, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the, I think the key thing is, um, this, you know, strike situation, you are participating with thousands of other workers. You actually have a much bigger impact on other staff who have not yet joined the union, but are thinking about joining the union are sympathetic because you're, you know, taking a collective stance, you're showing your power industrially. And then in the university context, obviously a huge, huge, um, you know, part of the campaign is always students. And it's a way of involving students in strike action, especially when we set up pickets um, around the campus to shut it down. It's a way for students to get an education in the so-called art of picketing, i.e. stopping scabs crossing. Well, I was going to actually ask something about the picket lines. I got to be on a couple of them um, as a sort of, a, you know, whatever, guest worker or something at the at the pickets and they were thank really extraordinary. That. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It was really fun. But um, it's, it's not something that automatically happens when there's a strike. 
Uh, and it's certainly not something that automatically happens on university campuses when there's a strike. And universities are, like you said, an entire suburb. A lot of the time they're notoriously large. So what was the logic behind um, picketing and, and making that a big part of the, the strikes that did happen? Yeah, so picketing has been an element of Sydney Uni strikes for as long as I can remember. And I've been involved in the union for more than 10 years now. Why we insist on picketing, I think it's uh, first, first and foremost, it's about drawing a line, quite literally. It's, it's, <laughs> it's draw, a picket line, yeah. Drawing or rather building one, <laughs> building the barricades. No, um, it's, it's about, um, so obviously with a strike, you know, you're withdrawing your labor, you're refusing to come to work, um, you're, you know, shutting down production, whatever that looks like for you in your workplace. But you also want other people to join you and you want that action to be highly visible. So the purpose of setting up a picket line is to draw attention to that, to block entrances um, and basically politically argue with people that um, there's a side here to take and you really need to take our side. Um, We're fighting for better wages and conditions for all of us. you quite literally work here because Sydney Uni has good wages and conditions. Don't don't lie to me. <laughs> you love what we do. What are you doing trying to cross the picket line? You know, and with students, it's a way of educating them in the class struggle. In, um, you know, we always say that uh, students learn so much more from the struggles in the union um, and our industrial campaigns than they do in their arts classes. Seriously, um, they they have a concrete education in. What does management do when there's a strike? Uh, what do the police do when there's a strike? What do scabs and strike breakers do when there's a strike? Um, and then, you know, pickets are inherently political places. People have endless political discussions. Um, you know, a lot of uh, students, student clubs, you know, academics, they like to organize little teachings. Talk about their favorite topics. I was there for um, a lovely rendition of the Internationale, I believe, on the French horn. Yeah, that was gorgeous. It was like an impromptu uh, workers' solidarity student choir uh, singing the Internationale. Exactly, exactly. Um, Songs of resistance, you know. So there's just so many things that happen at a picket line, the support from the community. But, yeah, I think if, if I could sum it all up, I think that the why picket, it's because you want to drag your dispute out into the open and you want people to take your side, essentially. One of the other arguments uh, against strikes that's often made in our unions, certainly was made in mine, uh, is that well, the members are really tired now. And especially, you know, you guys had a campaign that dra- dragged on for two years. Um, my campaign in the RTBU was similar. And it becomes quite an attractive argument that members are tired, it's all a bit too overwhelming, and so we need to, um, we can't have strikes. We need to have a kind of lesser action um, that's not too exhausting. I know this was something that came up a whole bunch of times for you guys. Uh, what did you argue against that in Fight Back? Well, firstly, we never argued that striking and we, firstly, firstly, we never argued that carrying out the kind of industrial campaign that was necessary to beat back management's attacks 
or win our own list of demands was going to be a walk in the park. So we never pretended like it was just going to be this thing that, you know, would be over quickly. We knew we were in for a big fight. At the same time, though, uh, we strove to inspire people and remind people about what's at stake with this EBA and what could actually change in people's working lives should should we win our demands. So we kept, uh, you know, we kept the bar high. We kept... Um, our eyes on the prize and I think that helped keep inspiring people to have the nine days of strike um, despite all the challenges that we had against you know all the other moderate uh, or right-wing factions in the union who kept saying that members were tired we just kept reminding people well what's at stake Um, we're tired Um, you know people might be tired from standing on a picket line for 10 hours but they're actually exhausted, absolutely exhausted from working 60, 70 hour weeks. Well, I think in many ways, this argument that members are too tired to take further industrial action, it can become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, can't it? Because, you know, you have some strike action. You know, I attended as a supporter some of the early UCID pickets, um, particularly when you kick things off with a two-day strike and there's, you know, a lot of member participation. Um, but it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy when you have intersperse uh, strike action with long, long gaps in between. Um, and I think this is one of the things that uh, union officials take advantage of when they're, you know, trying to sell a deal and, you know, get people prepared to sign off on something that's way less than what they were fighting for. Um, yeah. I, I think it's partially projection. <laughs> it's partially like... The union officials feel tired. They don't want this campaign to keep going on and they use this as an they just say, claim that members are all tired and use it as an excuse. And this is often in the face of, you know, overwhelmingly good ballots that you do early on for a whole range of industrial action, including and up to, you know, indefinite strikes. And in the face of that, they say, oh, the members are so tired. So I think, you know, sometimes those claims can be taken with a grain of salt. I do think as well, though, that when you have a strategy like that, like Chloe said, that drags things on um, and it feels like you're not necessarily getting anywhere because you're not really putting your foot down, drawing a line and, and going to hack against the bosses, it can feel demoralizing. And I think they do tap into that and, and kind of use it. So it's a bit of both. It's a bit of bullshit. It's a bit of um, a, a, a reality that they have created and are then kind of exploiting. I think it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy because the same people who have, you know, made the argument in the last couple of years that members are tired are actually the same people who actively pushed for less strike action to happen from the first day, i.e. before anybody had a chance to get tired. Um, and, you know, it's it's unfortunate that some of these arguments were um, taken up by the people who are supposed to be, you know, moderate lefts in the union as well, um, eventually. And it became this self-fulfilling prophecy in a couple of the meetings where, um, you know, it was just this mood that was basically brought uh, down onto the membership. And it's a way of demoralizing people. It's a way of laying the basis for defeat. And I think it's actually quite a concerted strategy ultimately I think because it then becomes a situation where the officials who know they will be selling what is uh, pretty much a crap deal 
they need somebody to blame and that's uh that's not themselves and then so it becomes this thing of well you know the members are tired and so we're going to blame the members um so yeah it's definitely a self-fulfilling prophecy and i think it's quite hypocritical for people who argue that members are tired and it's you know this is what members voted for i.e to stop striking it's quite hypocritical for those types of members and uh, sorry for, for that type of leadership in the union to ignore their role ignore the role that they played in making sure that members were tired of strikes or felt like they were getting nowhere or felt like they weren't winning much or felt like they were just taking losses and something that any political activist, whether you're a union activist or involved in any you know, social movement campaign knows is momentum is something that you build towards. It's something that's very easy to lose. I think union officials that, you know, would prefer to, you know, cut a deal quickly um, uh, and, you know, are not willing to take the kind of escalation of industrial action, particularly in this climate of inflation, that would be necessary to win serious advances um, or even defend the conditions that we have right now, they can use that kind of, you know, uh, slowing down of momentum because workers are not just like a tap that you can turn on and turn off. Um, and so I think in that context, it's so impressive that there were these nine days of strike action given how they were so interspersed um, over such a long period of time. Yeah, you really got a sense on the picket lines of, how much people wanted to be there and like um, how much this meant and that kind of the inspiration that comes from actually being part of a strike. It's not just totally exhausting in my experience. It's I haven't been on um, as many strikes as you or for as long, but it's something that really lifts people's spirits because it feels like we're actually achieving something. We're shutting things down. Uh, we're sticking it to the bosses. Those, mo- those months and months, though, in between strikes where you're waiting to hear what has happened in the amazing negotiating room under the, you know, uh, <laughs> at the negotiating table, those are the, the moments of the campaign that seem to drag on forever and, and um, can kind of make people lose interest or, or feel like it's not going anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I would just want to chip in a couple more things on this, um, you know, how the, the approach to negotiations and the approach to strikes. I think what's different with us in NTU Fight Back is that the strike is not just about shutting down the campus. It's about the massively transformative experience that happens with every member, with every, merc, uh, with every worker who is involved in the strike um, and the massive impact it has on the campus. So everyone who you speak to about going on strike has nothing but smiles about it you know stories of the picket lines stories of how proud they felt you know it's some of the best memories from their working lives are from being on a picket or being on strike and it's because you know as workers we have very little well actually pretty much zero control over our lives Um, and so the strike is one of the only moments in your life when you can actually assert yourself assert your autonomy um, assert your dignity as a human being um, and you get to do it with thousands of other workers um, who will back you up um, in the workplace, on the picket line, in the union. And then obviously you're also fighting for something really inspiring um, to improve your lot, to improve your colleagues' lot um, and fight for better education. So 
from the perspective of the worker and from ordinary members, strikes are hugely inspirational and important. It's quite sad, though, the way that the other side views strikes, which is, um, I think Chloe said it before, they view it as though it's like a tap you can turn on and off, um, as, you know, a pawn on a chessboard or you know, just a card that you play that you have in your back pocket. Or um, a last resort. That's, or a last resort. <laughs> that's how oh most my... officials talk about it. Like, oh, no, it's, I'm sorry. We're so sad, but we've had no to, go on, to go on strike. strike. Oh, no one. <laughs> <laughs> like, have these people been to picket lines before? <laughs> I know, and it's and it's just like I'm. I'm sorry that you're pathetic losers, but we're not. We actually, uh, you know, we actually have a lot more hope um, for you know humanity and what we can achieve. So, yeah, we'll get back to our picket line. You get back to your table. <laughs> well, it's something important that socialists bring to to the union movement. I think is an understanding of strikes and workers' struggles more broadly as not just being about like you know, how we win this or that demand or a bargaining chip or, or, or something, but actually something that changes working class consciousness in the long run. I mean, that's, that's why we're exactly. so obsessed with unions and strikes and stuff is like, we think workers should run the world. And this is, I'm not saying, you know, um, you guys are about to run the world, unfortunately, at Sydney University, but, you know, there's, uh, you get a little glimpse and a taste of what that would be like if working class people um, ran the world when you see workers in struggle. And it, and it actually has that impact on, on the people involved. You know, it feels like real power, real collective power, um, really sticking it to the bosses. It's something you can't get with um, some of the more meagre actions where it's just a, section, a small section of the workforce doing it. Uh, you certainly can't get it by sitting by your emails waiting to hear from uh, the latest <laughs> report from the, the bargaining table, which I've spent many <laughs> months of my life doing. Um, yeah, it's a very different caliber. It's a very different approach to unionism. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other element of what I want to say was that sadly, the majority of the union officials and um, I would say even our own bargaining team think that it's about acting on behalf of members. And I totally reject this um, approach to unionism that I, d I do not think unionism is about, you know, delegates or even elected officials acting on behalf of members. It's about the collective action that we take, the, the action we take together consciously um, in defense of our conditions or, you know, to win better conditions. So, yeah, I quite, I quite dislike this disconnect between um, the way that bargaining team officials, etc., approach bargaining um, and the way that we approach bargaining. Well, another aspect of that is members just even being informed on what is going on in the negotiating, um, at the negotiating table, what exactly. is being bargained away. Um, and this can seem like actually one of just the basic questions of union democracy. But, you know, why do we have union democracy so that member, members can actually be informed about what's going on, uh, deliberate on, you know, what the kind of outcomes are, actually have some sense of what tactics do we need, do we need to escalate, um, you know, uh, have we actually had our demands met? So tell me, I know that has been part of the debate um, at Sydney Uni about like what information the members are getting back from the bargaining team. Why does that matter? So in an ideal situation, we would have open bargaining. This would essentially mean that no meetings between the bargaining team or the union representatives 
um, and management happen in secret or behind closed doors. Um, instead, what should happen is that every single member um, is able to attend every single bargaining team meeting. And ideally, this is all broadcast, you know, whether through Zoom or whatever, um, or, you know, in a big lecture theatre. Um, and we have maximum participation so people are engaged. This this matters because members have a right to know um, what is being discussed and what is being negotiated, um, you know, in terms of the claims and clauses that will govern their working lives. It sounds like the reality has been really far from that ideal at Sydney Uni. So what have you, yeah, what have you been up against there? Yeah, exactly. So un- unfortunately, the um, what we've had instead, um, there have been dozens and dozens of meetings that have happened essentially behind closed doors and we've had to rely on secondhand information from in the form of uh, reports from bargaining team or reports from management that essentially summarize discussions but that don't actually address um, in concrete detail every single item on our log of claims, our list of demands. Um, and so we find ourselves in a situation where last Friday, only three days ago, um, after we've already had the settlement meeting, which debated on, um, you know, whether or not to keep striking. So well, well after the campaign has been wound up, we find ourselves in a situation that this is the first time members are actually seeing the draft clauses that will be governing their working conditions and pay. This is absolutely outrageous. This is an absolute stain honestly on the both the bargaining team um and our officials for um allowing this to happen um and unfortunately it's not the first time it's happened because it we all know as union activists and you know just as workers we know that one word mm. <laughs> changed in your clause in your contract can completely alter the meaning of that condition um and so you know I think Jerem said the devil's in the details in his article and there's exactly. really a lot of devil in these details. Exactly, exactly. Well, tell us a bit about the Vote No campaign that you guys in Fightback have launched um, against this deal. Like how is that going? What are, what are some of the things you've done to try and get the word out and make the argument that people should vote against this deal? Firstly, just the political basis of the Vote No campaign we think it's super important to plant a flag of resistance for not just, you know, not just to protest against the attacks in this EBA, but for future battles. We want it known that this is not a popular deal. And indeed, even at the last settlement meeting, you know, in the context of fear mongering from national office, from the right wing branch. Um, of the union, from the overselling on the EBA deal, from the moderate faction, etc. Even in that context, still 42% of people voted against settlement. So that is quite a big number. So there really is a material basis for um, a good vote no campaign. Sadly, up to this point, it's actually only been NTU fight back leading the vote no campaign in any meaningful sense. Um, from the moment that the um, settlement meeting happened, uh, we started campaigning for a vote no. 
and uh, we had a very successful couple of forums in the last um, few weeks, posters, you know, arming workers with the arguments about why the EBA deal is not actually a win, what it means for our conditions, how it sets us back, etc. I think one of the most important reasons to run the Vote No campaign is that as trade unionists, it's our job to be extremely honest about what's gone on with the campaign, even if that means reporting on losses. So rather than pretending like our nine days of strike have, you know, won us all these conditions, it's actually super important to be like, no, actually this agreement sets us back. This, um, we're going to be poorer under this agreement. It, you know, it poses, poses challenges for us going forward, etc. Because it's quite sad and there's a whole history of this happening when officials feel like they need to sell defeats as victories. And I think, I think this is disorienting. So, yeah, I think that's important. Well, one thing I think is important, Alma, is that you're a socialist. You've been a socialist for a very long time. Like how do you think being a socialist, being against capitalism – shapes your approach to trade unionism so basically <laughs> i hate the bosses and they hate me <laughs> um i think being a socialist first and foremost first and foremost being a socialist means you know who the enemy is it's always the bosses it's always management we don't have common interests with the university administration we're not all just fighting for a better university. We actually have quite kind of opposed interests. The university wants to make more money out of us. They want to make more money out of students. Um, and they want to make us work harder uh, for less money. And as workers, whether we're, you know, casual tutors or administrators or gardeners or academics or whatever, um, our interests are to increase our wages and improve our working conditions um, and actually improve the quality of education. That's another thing management don't care about. They don't care about the quality of, of education. If they could get away with it, they would have uh, far less face-to-face -face teaching, far less you know, things in the curriculum, et cetera. So they care about turning a profit. We care about the actual quality of education. So I think being a socialist, it gives you a bit of a superpower in that sense that you know who the enemy is. Um, and I think when you know who the enemy is, I think it helps to orient to who is the change as well because I think, um, you know, you orient to the people who can actually make a difference at the university or in your workplace. It's always workers. Um, workers banding together collectively, um, drawing up a list of demands, inspiring other workers to fight for those demands, and then basically doing the hard yards that we need to do to, um, you know, make our action happen. So whether that's a protest, a rally, or a strike, um, workers are the solution. And uh, being a socialist, it's, you know, you know that that's the case. And I think being a socialist teaches you that you need to adopt the no concession stance because you have an understanding of what the class divide is like, what the workplace is like, and what the bosses are capable of, that if you give them an inch, that they'll take a mile. And if you give them concessions, they just think you're piss weak. 
So why would you give them concessions? You know, um, so I think it's super important for unionists to adopt the no concession stance because it's about sending a message to management that this union won't be messed with. We have drawn a line in the sand. We intend to defend it um, and we intend to um, fight till the end until we win. Fuck yeah, I think that's the only way to victory. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Alma. Thank you for having me. You can hear from Jeremy and Alma again later this year in Sydney at the Socialism Conference, Sydney's largest festival of anti-capitalist ideas. Uh, they'll be speaking more um, in more detail about class struggle in universities on August 9th. You can also read articles by both Jerem and Alma in Red Flag. Um, that's included in the show notes. They've both written articles about the dispute at Sydney University and some of the challenges in the higher education sector more broadly. But lastly, a desperate cry for help. Uh, we are recording this podcast and have been over the last few weeks in an echoey, hot attic uh, in my house. Uh, that's really not appropriate for what we're doing. It's, it's uh, only appropriate at the moment because it's winter and it's still 30 degrees in here. Uh, so in summer, it will be unbearable. So before that time, we need your help. And you know, I'm sure we'll say much smarter things and make a much better podcast uh, if we have money to hire a studio or get some soundproofing stuff. Um, so that's really a plea to please become a Patreon supporter. Exactly. Uh, please give us your fucking money, <laughs> to quote Ben Hillier. Um, we are revamping our Patreon. Uh, we're going to be making available, for example, the full interview with Hossam El-Hamalawi about the Egyptian revolution. He actually said a lot of amazing stuff when we interviewed him. Uh, we talked for a long time about the history of the Egyptian left and all sorts of things, and we didn't get to include a lot of that in the podcast on revolutions in the 21st century. So we're going to be releasing uh, a whole um, special exclusive uh, episode with the the rest of the stuff that he talked about um, that is only available to our Patreons. That's the kind of thing uh, that we'll be doing. So please, uh, please help. If you enjoy this podcast uh, and you enjoy what we're doing with it, um, please give us your money.